Blog Talk Radio. Welcome one and all. This is Parkinson's Recovery and I am your host, Robert Rogers. This is the show to hear if you happen to be an individual who is interested in finding out ways to get sustained relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's and to reverse those symptoms. I have a remarkable individual who is my guest today, Dr. Mary Newport. Before I actually introduce her, I want to make sure that everyone listening to this show is aware of two exciting events that are coming up sponsored by Parkinson's Recovery. The first is coming up this Sunday on Mother's Day. It's an opportunity to have a telephone conference with one of the individuals who is featured in Pioneers of Recovery, Howard Shifke. Howard has actually reversed his own Parkinson's symptoms and is symptom-free today. This actually is the first and the launch of the Sunday Connections program. This is going to allow an opportunity for everyone to connect in at the same time on Sunday afternoons, 2 p.m. Pacific time or 5 p.m. Eastern time, and talk over the phone or, if you happen to live in another country, through your computer using Skype, to other individuals who are interested in exploring options for getting relief from the symptoms of Parkinson's. Each of these sessions on Sundays will be hosted by a different individual. All of the individuals have actually been guests on the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Show. Those of you who are regular listeners will be familiar with many of the individuals who are listed as forthcoming hosts. Well, this Sunday happens to be Mother's Day, and what better way to be mothered than to connect in and to join the telephone conference. You can also just listen. You can have a chat, which means that you can write in sentences and talk with other people in the chat room. You can ask questions before the event. But, of course, the most remarkable part of it is it's a live connection with Howard as the host and all of the other individuals who will be connecting in. This is a program that requires an amazing commitment of $5 a month. That's $1.25 a week. A meager contribution is required in order to be able to participate. I invite each of you to join in and connect with Howard Schiffke this Sunday at 2 p.m. specific time. More information about the Sunday Connections program can be found by visiting the website that explains everything about what is involved. That website is www. Sundays, S-U-N-D-A-Y-S, dot Parkinson'sRecovery.com, P-A-R-K-I-N-S-O-N-S-R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y.com. The second forthcoming event is the event really of the year, if not the decade, for anyone currently experiencing the symptoms of Parkinson's. It is the Parkinson's Recovery Summit, an amazing two days with eight 
13 different workshops that will be presented covering many of the options that people on my radio shows have reported are making a difference in helping them reverse their own symptoms. Many of the presenters have Parkinson's and have figured out ways to reverse their symptoms. Some of the workshop presenters are individuals who work exclusively, if not intensively, with individuals who had the symptoms of Parkinson's. And, of course, the presenters are knowledgeable about the areas that they are, are actually presenting information about. Information about the summit to be held in Cincinnati, Ohio, on June the 21st for an evening reception, June the 22nd and June the 23rd, again, Cincinnati, Ohio, can be found on the Summit website. And that website is www.summit.parkinsonsrecovery.com. So that website is www.summit.com. Parkinson's, P-A-R-K-I-N-S-O-N-S, recovery, R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y dot com. It will be the first of an amazing sequences of events that we're having each and every year. This is the second summit that Parkinson's Recovery has sponsored. You will join an amazing group of individuals, all of whom are on the road to recovery and discovering options that are making a huge difference to their ability to get relief from whatever symptoms they might currently be experiencing. Again, I'm Robert Rogers, your host. This is Parkinson's Recovery. And now on to my interview with Dr. Mary Newport. My guest today is Dr. Mary Newport. Dr. Newport, tell us all about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, um, most women don't want to tell their age, but I'm 60 (laughs) years old, (laughs) and um, I'm a physician. I um, practice near Tampa, Florida, uh, originally uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, I am a neonatologist. So I'm basically a pediatrician, and I did additional training in the care of sick and high-risk uh, premature newborns. Um, so I take care of newborns in a newborn intensive care unit setting. Um, I'm a hospital-based physician. I work at the hospital. And um, I've been practicing now for almost 30 years, um, and it's it, – curious that I talk about Alzheimer's disease, but the reason is that my husband, Steve, who is 62 now, has early onset Alzheimer's disease, and he started having problems right around age 51, so we've been dealing with this for about 11 years now. Um, He had a bachelor's degree in accounting, and he worked for a number of years for a mental health, mental retardation group in uh, northern Kentucky before we left Cincinnati, and then um, when we had our children, he decided, we basically decided together, but he volunteered to be a stay-at-home parent, and he was able to do accounting and bookkeeping from home while taking care of our children. He he worked for my practice. and that worked out extremely well for us. But my job is crazy. I uh, get called out at all times of the days and nights. And um, at the drop of a hat, I have to drop everything. I have emergencies. And so it was good for our children to have one stable parent who they could depend on to be there all the time. And, and that was Steve. And um, he, just, he did a 
beautiful job. He says that was the best job he ever had, you know, taking care of our girls. Uh, yeah. So that's where, you know, we start. <laughs> um, he he was a, a excellent accountant and bookkeeper and uh, very particular, um, always did a very good job until <laughs> right around age 51. And things started happening where he would make payroll mistakes, very significant payroll mistakes. Um, and then he started procrastinating on getting certain tax reports done, like a quarterly tax report that he had to turn in. He would often be late. We would get penalties. And it was a simple report. It wasn't a very difficult report, but he would spend two or three days organizing. He called it organizing himself, you know, before he could sit down to the task and do it. And, and um uh, you know, I thought, you know, that maybe he was just kind of in a midlife crisis <laughs> kind of mode. <laughs> yeah. Um, he would forget appointments that he was supposed to take the girls to, even if I called him a, he- a half hour ahead of time, he would still forget to take them sometimes. And it just seemed odd. And, you know, I thought maybe he was just distracted or whatever. Um, but then he started having problems remembering if he had been to the bank and the post office. And that was very atypical. And that's, not something that you would expect at age 51 that, you know, you would forget if you'd been to the bank and post office. And, you know, in our case at the post office, he was picking up important mail. It was um, uh, payments from people and from insurance companies, and he would misplace the mail. (laughs) So we, you know, first he didn't know if he'd even been there, and then where he put it, you know, was the next problem. And that clearly was not normal. And um, he was also depressed at that point. Our Younger daughter, Joanna, was 13. She was uh, giving us a run for our money <laughs> as far as uh, behavior. <laughs> what 13-year-olds do. <laughs> exactly. And um, so he was quite depressed about that, it seemed. And so we took him to a physician to evaluate. And we actually talked a little bit about dementia as a possibility at that point. But the doctor said that memory problems can be a symptom of depression. And if you treat depression, that might improve. So we kind of went that route at first, and he was treated with antidepressants, and he continued to get worse. And uh, right around 2003, um, I had an opportunity to open another newborn intensive care unit about an hour north of where we were and decided to do that. And it meant a move, though, for our family um, and it was very hard on him. Um, he had always been able to find his way around, read a map, no problem. And he couldn't figure out this small town that we're in. It's called Spring Hill, uh, about 30 miles north of Tampa. And just a couple main arteries, north, south, east, west. He could not find his way around and couldn't remember what street he was on or what direction he was heading. And that just was not at all typical for him. And uh, he started spending hours out in the garage looking for something. He would spend literally hours. He would go out in the morning uh, looking for something, and then uh, I would come home from work, and he would still be looking for it sometimes. We're talking seven, eight hours later, you know, come home from the hospital. And then he couldn't remember what he was looking for, but he was still looking for it. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, at that point, it was pretty clear that the antidepressants weren't helping, and I called our local Alzheimer's family organization to get a recommendation for a doctor, since we were relatively new in town, a neurologist that 
you know, sees a lot of Alzheimer's patients is what we were looking for. And so um, I took him to that doctor, and he did a complete workup. You know, he did, uh, there was, uh, first he did a test called the mini mental status exam, and it's a 30-point test of memory. It's very simple. Um, if you're normal, you'll get 30 points. It's just a very easy test. Um, and he scored only 23 at that point. So already that was kind of a shock. And um, he said he felt he had some type of dementia, didn't really want to call it Alzheimer's at that point until he could personally see worsening of the disease over time. Um, he did have an MRI, and at that point it was normal. So this was like early 2004. Um, and he had blood work to rule out things like hypothyroidism and B12 deficiency and you know, uh, diseases that are known to cause memory problems. Um, and all of that came back normal. So he saw Steve about every six months, and basically six months later he did see worsening, and um, he uh, started him on Aricept, which is one of the dr drugs that most people with Alzheimer's start off on. It helps increase some of the chemicals in the brain um, that are lacking in Alzheimer's. And so he... Um, well, I decided to, to try to get him further evaluated, and we have a, an Alzheimer center here in Tampa, the Bird Alzheimer Institute, and also see if we could get him into a clinical trial. Um, and the first time around, uh, there was an anti-inflammatory drug that they thought might be beneficial, and they rejected him because he had a history of depression. And my feeling about that was, if you had early onset Alzheimer's disease and you were aware of it, wouldn't you be depressed? <laughs> really? <laughs> it's a bizarre exclusion, you know, for a, an Alzheimer clinical trial. Jeez, you know. So, but later down the road, they kind of dropped that, and you know, most of the studies, which is a good thing. Uh. But um, you know, so, but you know, he continued on a downward spiral, and really by 2006, he could no longer do any accounting at all. And he was a guy who was on the computer all the time. He could even open a computer up and fix it if it was not acting right. And he, um, he got to the point by 2006 where he couldn't even turn on a computer, use a calculator, or even do simple math. So, you know, um, they talk about use it or lose it all the time. And he was using it, and it still went away just mm -hmm. bit by bit. Mm -hmm. You know, he was on a computer for hours every day. If he wasn't working on it, he was playing on it, you know. And, uh, and he lost all of that. Um, and so this was uh, 2006. And then, you know, into 2007, he started uh, developing also some physical symptoms with some tremor and a very slow gait. And um, he, um, he has probably a few uh, symptoms. There's some overlap between Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. A lot of people with Alzheimer's will develop some Parkinson's symptoms. And by, you know, people with Parkinson's, well, you know, I think about a fourth of them may develop some Alzheimer's-type dementia as time goes on. So there's overlap, and, and we were seeing some of that. Steve couldn't run anymore um, by, like, the summer of 2007. And then he lost the ability to make meals for himself, and even, you know, he didn't even realize he was hungry. Um, and I found this out when I had a particularly busy period in August of 2007, where about three weeks in a row I was on call and I was working late into the evening and I'd come home and I'd say, oh, do you eat dinner? He says, oh, yeah, I'm, you know. 
And then he, over that three weeks, he lost 10 pounds. He was he looked thin, and I thought, what the heck? And it got him on the scale, and I realized he wasn't eating. And I started looking for evidence that he, he had eaten, and there wasn't any. And and um, so I realized that, you know, uh, somebody really, if I couldn't be there, somebody had to be there, you know, to make sure he ate lunch and dinner. And so our daughter, one of our daughters, filled in the one who was <laughs> gave us so much trouble. She's the one who's here <laughs> to help us all the time. And um, so she she would come by and make sure that he ate, you know, when I was uh, working. And and um, so then we get into 2008, and he just really seemed like he was on a downward spiral, and he was very depressed um, to the point of, um, you know, I think being suicidal, you know, he uh, he kind of revealed to me that that the 60 times a day the thought went through his head that he should do himself in, and and that was really frightening. Um, uh, you know, he's already on antidepressants at that point, and um, you know things were just looking grim for both of us. And you know, at that point, I was um, 56, and I I really figured by 60 I would be a widow. You know, I really, I did because of the way he was going. And so uh, then we got a little bit of hope uh, right around May of 2008. There were two new clinical trials, and there hadn't been any new ones in our area for a while. And uh, uh, people who know about Alzheimer's know that there's plaque, there are plaques and tangles are like hallmarks of the disease. When they look at the brain, um, that they develop these thick plaques and um for a long time it was thought that the plaques, whatever caused the plaques, caused Alzheimer's disease, and now they know that it's probably an aftermath of whatever causes the disease. But it's just um, by virtue of what they are, they can damage neurons around them, um, so they, it, they make it that much worse, the plaques. Um, the tangles are basically like the skeleton of the neurons that become wadded up inside of the cell, you know, when they die. Um, and so, some people think that that causes the cell to die, and others think that it's the result of the cell dying. So there's still a, a lot that's unknown about Alzheimer's in spite of the, the billions of dollars of research that have gone into it over the years. Um, so the two drugs, there were two clinical trials um, that were uh, available. Um, and so I set them up for screenings for these two, and both of them were aimed at reducing plaque in the brain. One was uh, an IV vaccine, um, that's the trial still going on, and the other was an oral medication that would help reduce the plaque, and, and that one ultimately was stopped because it caused accelerated worsening of the disease compared to the placebo, so that oh, was not a good trial. No. Unfortunately, Steve uh, was in that trial. Oh. <laughs> but um, So um, he had two screenings set up back-to-back, um, two days in a row, and the night before the first screening, I started thinking, what if he gets accepted into both studies? Um, I need to find out more about the risks and benefits of these drugs because we have to make a choice. You can't be in two studies at the same time. And and um, so I got online in the evening and started researching these, and then I came upon a press release for another treatment that I had not heard about before. And basically, at that point, it was called AC1202. And now it's marketed as a medical food in uh, the U.S. It's available as a prescription called Axona, A-X-O-N-A. But what they said in this press release is that it improved the memories of nearly half the people with Alzheimer's that took it. 
And I thought, well, that's very interesting because none of the other drugs for Alzheimer's claim that they improve the memory. You know, they may slow down the progress of the disease for six or 12 months, but they don't um, improve the memory. And so um, it didn't really say what it was. And naturally being curious, um, I looked it up online and I was able to get their patent application, which you can find a patent for anything. All, all the patents are available at Free Patents Online. Dot com and um, so I found their patent application and I learned about alt- a lot about Alzheimer's uh, things that I I didn't really know or hadn't really heard too much about before and the first is that it's a type of diabetes of the brain and um, what they have found uh, there's a, a group well many groups have studied this aspect of Alzheimer's disease with insulin and glucose problems but um, a group at Brown University um, Dr. Suzanne Delamonte um, and her uh, people um, looked at brains of people with Alzheimer's uh, who did not have type 1 or type 2 diabetes. And what they found was that there's a, a marked decrease in insulin production in the brain and also insulin resistance in the brain. And um, what effectively, glucose can't get into the cells, into the neurons in the brain and the cells malfunction and then eventually die. And um, they coined the term diabetes type 3 to be diabetes of the brain because these people didn't have type 1 or type 2 diabetes, you know, that they looked at. Um, So then they went and looked at um, people over time, you know, who died maybe of other reasons earlier in the course of the disease. So they looked at earlier, moderate, and severe stages of Alzheimer's, and they found that from the very beginning, that the people had this problem, but it was it became more and more severe and more widespread throughout the brain uh, by the time they reached the later stages. So this problem of getting energy into the cells is there from the beginning in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and other groups have looked at PET scans, um, glucose. They look for glucose uptake in the brain or energy uptake in the brain, and they've looked as far back as people in their 20s uh, who are at risk because... Uh, one or both of their parents have Alzheimer's, and they found that even people in their 20s who are at risk have decreased glucose uptake in the brain compared to people who are not at risk. So this process was going on for a very long time before you even start to develop symptoms. Um, So, you know, as I'm reading through this patent application, then, you know, they talk about this concept, and then they begin talking about a concept of using alternative fuels for the brain. And glucose is the usual fuel for our brain and for most of the uh, organs in our body most of the time. And here in the U.S., we have a very high-carbohydrate diet. Um, So, you know, there's plenty of sugar available, probably too much sugar available, (laughs) you know, for a lot of people. And... um, uh, but when you are starving, um, which doesn't happen to us very often, but does happen to other people in the world today, and, and it certainly happened to our ancient um, ancestors, you know, they had periods of feast and famine, you know, where they would have food for a while. They would lay on fat, and then they would uh, starve, you know, when they literally didn't have an animal to eat or whatever. Um, and uh, what happens is, when you're starving over about 24 to 48 hours, you use up all the glucose that's stored in your body. And then um, if you didn't have fat, you would start breaking down proteins from like the muscle in your body. And, and that's still, that does happen to some extent. But because we have fat, 
uh, we start tapping into the fat then. And uh, the final, uh, some of our organs, like our muscles, can use fatty acids as they're broken down, but the brain can't. And so um, the, one of the end products of breaking down fat are ketones, or ketone bodies, they're called. And these do cross the blood-brain barrier, and they provide fuel to the brain in place of glucose when that happens. And the ketones actually mimic the effect of insulin also because well, if your glucose levels are low, you also don't produce much insulin. So somehow um, there are a lot of effects from insulin other than just getting glucose into the cell, but the ketones will basically supply the the energy in place of glucose and also act like insulin in these cells in the brain and you know other um, organs in the body all the other organs except the liver can use ketones and they're made in the liver so uh, I think uh, if the liver could use ketones it would probably use them all up before they even got out of the liver but um, so we have this uh, alternative fuel now um, that can provide uh, energy to the brain cells and so, you know, the idea here is, you know, since the Alzheimer brain is deficient in, in the ability to use glucose, that you provide ketones. So there's several ways to do this. And one is um, a ketogenic diet. And um, this classic, very strict ketogenic diet has been used to treat childhood epilepsy for about 110 years. It was discovered uh, actually way back in uh, biblical times that fasting could stop seizures in somebody with epilepsy. And so the starvation thing, you know, here, the ketones rise is what they ultimately learned. And um, in certain people, I think it's about a, maybe one-fourth to one-fifth of people uh, who have severe epilepsy, they'll completely stop having seizures. And another maybe third of the people will have a huge reduction, like 90% reduction in their seizures if they have high ketone levels. And um, so, like Atkins diet is an example, uh, and South Beach diet of low carbohydrate, high fat, relatively high fat diets. You know where um, you go into ketosis, but it's milder than with a classic ketogenic diet. And so then um, there's another way that you can get ketones, um, and that is by ingesting medium chain fatty acids or medium chain triglycerides. And these, uh, what, what they found back in the 19, uh, right around 1970, was that if you consume medium-chain triglyceride oil, that your liver will convert part of that to ketones. And so, um, you know, this is another way to, you know, provide ketones to the brain potentially. And and what I learned in this patent application, this, this was what this company was developing as a medical food, was simply medium-chain triglyceride oil. And it, uh, I learned in this that it, it's extracted from coconut oil. And I found out later that it's about 60% of the fats, like 60% of the fats in coconut oil. Um, and I was familiar with MCT oil because I'm a neonatologist. <laughs> so we go like full circle here. Hmm. Um, back around 1970 when they discovered this, um, they began using it. Um, they found that, that premature babies tolerated it very well. They absorbed it very well, and that if you gave it to them with their feedings, they would gain weight faster and get home sooner. And so in the late 70s, early 80s, I was using MCT oil in the NICU to treat my premature babies. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And um, so, and, and then subsequently, the 
formula manufacturers started making premature formulas where they added more of this. And if you look at any formula package, infant formula pack, you know, package, the ingredients now, virtually every one of them will have MCT oil, coconut oil, and or palm kernel oil, which is another rich source of um, the medium chain triglycerides. It's about 54%, and palm kernel oil, it's just very hard to find that um, here in the U.S. Um, so, and, you know, one of the reasons that it's in these formulas is they're trying to mimic breast milk, and human breast milk has um, anywhere from te 10 to 17% of the fatty acids or medium-chain fatty acids. Um, oils like soybean oil, canola, olive oil, all of those have absolutely no medium-chain fatty acids in it. Um, Whole milk, like the fat and butter um, and cream, there is a little bit there. So if you eat uh, skim milk <laughs> or low-fat milk, you're getting basically very little or no medium-chain fatty acids. And if you're eating the typical oils that we have in the American diet, you're not getting any. You know, you're basically not getting any medium-chains. And um, so you go from breastfeeding and receiving these to basically not getting any if you eat the typical American diet. Um, so this company did um, two studies. Uh, they used MCT oil, um, and they the first study, they had 20 people, and each person served as their own control. So they came two different times. Um, one of the times they came, they were given placebo, and the other time they came, they were given MCT oil. And they did a battery of seven tests of cognitive function. And what they found was that after the people got the MCT oil compared to their other visit with the placebo, that on five out of the seven tests, they had improvement in their scores after just one dose. So this was pretty amazing. It was about 90 minutes after the dose that they started the testing, and they, um, they measured their ketone levels, and they did, in fact, have an increase in their ketone levels at just a you know, very small relatively low level um, and so then they that was a phase one study they were, they were trying to get um, FDA approval for um, originally they were going to go for a approval as a drug and then they decided to uh, stay with um, medical food designation I think you know that way they could get it out much much sooner um, instead of taking several years longer you know to get approved as a drug mm -hmm. and it's really not a drug you know drugs are Normally, they're, they're new molecules. They're man-made, you know, synthetic molecules, whereas MCT oil is something that occurs naturally, you know, um, in food. Um, so their, their second study was um, 152 people. And, you know, some of the people got placebo during the whole time, and the other people got MCT oil during the whole time. And they looked at, they tested them at 45 days and at 90 days, and they found, again, that almost half the people had improved cognitive scores um, that were taking the MCT oil. Um, and so uh, they ultimately did get approval as a medical food. But the problem was, I was reading this in May of 2008, and they were still a year away from just coming out on the market. <laughs> mm. And I thought, well, I wonder if this would help Steve, you know. Um, and I really didn't want to wait. And um, I did not know that MCT oil was available over the counter. I knew hospitals could get it, but I didn't know it was available over the counter. So um, I started looking, you know, more deeply into using coconut oil. And um, what happened was, okay, so I read this about this the night before, 
um, the first screening, and the screening was uh, his testing was at 9 a.m. So I really didn't have time to run out and buy coconut oil, and um, so we went on down to the screening, and. Again, uh, they tested him with the MMSE test, the 30-point test, and he got only 14 points, and he needed at least 16. And that in and of itself was a shock, you know, because he had there hadn't even been a trial available for a couple of years, and his score had dropped so much that now he didn't qualify to get into the study. Oh. And that was earth-shattering to, yeah. to us, you know. He, yeah. we were He's very well aware that he has this disease. He always has been, and, and we were both very... Um, very sad about this and um, the doctor had him draw a clock and uh, with the slides that you'll see he drew it was a few little random circles and a few numbers didn't look anything like a clock it was very disorganized and the doctor kind of pulled me aside and she said you know he's on the verge of severe Alzheimer's you know with a clock like this it's a very specific test for Alzheimer's and so you know I, I mean I see the deterioration you see it every day but still it was a shock that his score was so low and to see him draw a clock that looked like that um very frightening really um so on the way home i thought what have we got to lose we'll go pick up some coconut oil <laughs> on the way home <laughs> yeah. oh, and I remember ever seeing it at one store <laughs> it was about 30 miles out of the way <laughs> so we uh we drove there and picked up the coconut oil and you know all i could think you know was Whenever I would see this in the store, I'd think, what is coconut oil doing in a health food store? <laughs> because I had bought into, you know, there's this myth out there that coconut oil is the artery-clogging fat. You know, it turns out that's not really true. But um, I had always wondered about it, and I thought, okay, well, he's going to die of Alzheimer's disease. Even if it does clog his arteries, that would probably happen later, you know. Uh-huh. So I decided to pick up coconut oil and um, brought it home, and I did more research online. I had to kind of refresh my memory about which fats were the medium-chain fats, and I was able to find uh, the composition, the fatty acid composition of coconut oil from a government website uh, where they analyze foods. And... Um, I figured out that 60% roughly of the oil is the medium chain fats. So then I calculated based on the 20 gram dose of MCT oil that they were giving in their study that he should get 35 grams of coconut oil, and that equated to seven teaspoons or a little bit over two tablespoons. And so the next morning then um, for breakfast, I gave him um, a little over two tablespoons, and I put it in oatmeal because at room temperature it's kind of semi-solid. It looks a little bit like Crisco, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, but it melts very easily, very quickly. As soon as it hits anything warm, it melts, and mixed it in his oatmeal, and he ate that, and his screening was actually set for one in the afternoon, and so we went down to Tampa for this one, and um, he it improved. Uh, you know, they took him away for the test, and the nurse brought him back, and she starts drawing his blood and talking about, you know, this and that, and and I'm like, uh, well, how did he do? And she says, oh, he didn't tell you he got an 18, and he needed a 16 to qualify. Oh, so he four qualified. Points. Yeah, he qualified for the study. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, you know, at that point I wasn't sure if it was the coconut oil, really very good luck, or prayers answered, you know. Yeah. I just didn't really know, and I thought, well, you know, we're going to keep this going. And we were elated. You know, he had a chance to be in a, a, a study you know, and that gave us hope. Um, but but then the coconut oil gave us hope too. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I, I bought a couple cookbooks. Um, I got recipes from online, how to use coconut oil. And in the beginning, I gave him a measured dose, you know, still a little over two tablespoons for breakfast. And then later in the day, we just started cooking with it. We started substituting it for the other oils in the diet and um, and making coconut macaroons and just everything <laughs> coconut, everything coconut. Oh, what fun. <laughs> I know. And, and both of us love coconut, so... I mean, I you know, I just couldn't think of a more fun way <laughs> yeah. to, you know, and our local Asian store had uh, had uh, uh, coconut ice cream. It was made with coconut milk, no, not a bit of dairy in it, um, just pure coconut milk. So that just very pleasant way to, to treat Alzheimer's disease. And um, so what we saw with Steve, you know, before we started the coconut oil, he was very sluggish in the morning really didn't talk much and if he did it was very halting um he couldn't keep his thoughts together and he couldn't even find a utensil i just remember one time we were sitting at the table and we have a drawer with our utensils behind us and and he would turn around and say i need a spoon and he'd come back with a knife and he did this you know i he did this like five times you know if i offer to help him he's like no no let me do it you know and then um i like the fifth time he finally came back with a spoon and, and he couldn't remember how to get water out of the refrigerator door there, you know, things like that. And um, this changed very abruptly. He came out much more alert in the morning and he was talkative and he was smiling again, joking again. He could find the utensils in the water and he had a tremor when he would try to eat and when he would try to talk and those went away fairly quickly. Uh, we would see the tremor a little bit in his hand every so often mostly when the effect was wearing off. Um, and then two weeks after uh, we started the coconut oil, he drew another clock, and it's amazingly improved, you know, from the, the previous clock. Um, you can see it on this, the slides there, where, you know, he actually drew the circle and put all the numbers in the correct order, and then there are all these little spokes on it, and I don't know if those represent hands of the clocks or if he was just trying to line up the numbers or what he was doing there, but, you know, it's it's just, but, you know, you can tell it's a clock, and it's much, much better. And then 37 days after he started, he'd do another clock, and that one was a little cleaner looking. And um, But, you know, he improved so much during this time that, um I felt like I have a big secret <laughs> that nobody else. <laughs> yes, I indeed. <laughs> Alzheimer's need to know about this because, and I, to tell you the truth, I was a little unhappy with that company <laughs> that was developing this product. I thought, now why aren't they shouting to the world? You know, and then it, by that time, I too, I had found out that MCT oil is available over the counter. You know, and they're developing a product that's going to be a prescription. Um, I felt like they were maybe keeping a big secret that they should have told the world about, you know, uh, tried harder maybe, you know, to let people know that this is something that could help. Um, and if their food makes it easier, you know, all the better, you know. But um, I uh, talked with uh, Dr. Richard Beach at the NIH about it. He is a world expert on ketones. Um, I came across him in Wikipedia, of all places, and um had no trouble getting a hold of him, and um, he. I told him, at first I didn't tell him what I was doing with Steve. I just asked him theoretically um, if he thought that uh, coconut oil, you know, with the medium chains could improve somebody with Alzheimer's, and 
he said that he had actually talked with the people developing Axona, and he just didn't really think the low levels that you would get from that would be enough to bring about improvement. But when Steve drew the second clock um, at two weeks, um, I called him and I told him what I was doing, and I faxed him the clocks, and he was utterly amazed. He just he he really didn't think it would help, and yet it did. And and so he started sending me papers on it. Um, he told me that he was developing a ketone ester, uh, and this is uh, something that can be taken orally, and it can raise the levels much, much higher, more like what you would get with starvation or with the classic ketogenic diet, and potentially improve people even more, you know, than um, what we were seeing with Steve. And so, um, but he was having a funding problem. <laughs> He works for the NIH, and yet he was having trouble getting the NIH to um, begin clinical trials with it. Um, it was he figured it was going to cost probably about 15 million to uh, mass produce it and do the testing for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Well, he you know he feels it will help uh, Parkinson's disease, traumatic brain injury, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, uh, diabetes type one and type two. Um, just, you know, there are a number of neurodegenerative type diseases in which people have insulin resistance in some form in some part of the brain or the nervous system. And in diabetics, it's, it can be many organs, you know, throughout the body that are affected by decreased glucose uptake, and ultimately they develop problems with their eyes and with their kidneys and skin. You know, the circulation of their skin gets very poor. And, um, you know, this kind of treatment could help many, many, many people and yet uh, the NIH is kind of ignoring this and not really giving them the funding he needs to start doing clinical trials in people. He's had plenty of uh, animal studies. So he was, you know, very pleased to hear that ketosis, you know, would um, bring about improvement, but, you know, uh, believes that his ketone ester will bring about even more improvement. So um, he actually has passed uh, human toxicity studies now with no adverse effects. Um, and he is planning to do a study, you know, they, they've been trying to get it going, um, but the, again, the NIH isn't sponsoring it, it's in Oxford, England, to study Parkinson's. And he feels that Parkinson's is a good place to start because um, you should be able to tell within a month if this is going to be effective or not um, because of the types of symptoms, um, the, the rigidity and the tremor, you know, those kind of symptoms that people with Parkinson's have, you know, should improve fairly quickly um, if they receive something like this ketone ester. So um, Alzheimer's, he feels, will be like a two-year study um, and require more people uh, because there's so much variety of symptoms, you know, among people that have Alzheimer's and degrees, you know, stages of the disease that it may take one to two years um, to tell if it's effective or not. Um, so uh, that's kind of where, where that is at. Um, but uh, back to Steve, um, so <laughs> ultimately he did get into a clinical trial um, about two months after we started this. His MMSC score came up as high as 20 over that two months, and then, then they started doing other tests. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are like, well, how did he get into a study if he had something like this that he was doing? And, um, you know, the company was aware of it, and they didn't feel that it would affect their results. Um, so, and it was a dietary measure, it wasn't a drug, so they um, allowed him to be in the study, and 
and who was I to argue with him, you know, um, <laughs> or holding out hope, you know, he, he's not my patient, he's my husband, you know, right. and I want him to live as long as possible, <laughs> right. so, so um, we entered him into the study, and this was around the end of July of 2008, and what we saw was that over the first year, he actually continued to improve, and some of the things that we saw were um, he had a weird gait. It was slow and kind of stiff. So he'd pick his feet up a little high, and he couldn't run. And um, all that completely improved, you know, such that, I mean, to this day he has a normal gait and he can run now. Um, he um, had a visual disturbance, and he was a man who read novel after novel. He loved to just sit and read or go out in the sun and read. And, you know, he um, stopped reading probably about a year and a half before the coconut oil, and he explained to me that he couldn't tell me before why, but after the coconut oil, he could explain that um, he had a problem where the words would go into what he describes as like pixels on the page, and they would shake around. The words would move around on the page, and he could—he literally just could not read because of this visual disturbance. And it, it wasn't his eyes. You know, ophthalmologist said that his eyes were fine other than being nearsighted, but it was something in his brain you know, that was um, preventing him from being able to read. And, and after three to four months, that stopped, and that has never come back. <laughs> wow. Um, his reading comprehension improved a little bit, not a lot, during that year, and his um, conversational skills improved, you know, quite a bit, where he developed, you know, just a, a much better flow of conversation and putting his thoughts together. Um, before the coconut oil, he would take apart things instead of, like, he would like to help me around the house, so instead of vacuuming, he would, he, I came home one evening and the vacuum had been disassembled and was distributed all throughout our garage. <laughs> he would do things like that. And, I mean, Alzheimer's makes no sense whatsoever. The things people do make no sense. And instead of cutting the grass, he would take out the air filter and take little parts of it, and they would be, be lost. I mean, you know, we literally, I had to get a grass cutting service because um, he was taking it apart instead of cutting the grass and uh, couldn't even find the pieces. <laughs> so, um but then, you know, he went back to being able to do these things and not taking them apart, you know. Uh, he became much less distractible. He could, you know, uh, um, and his the depression completely lifted. He told me so many times that the day the coconut oil started, uh, it was like the light switch came back on. Like somebody turned on a switch and the fog lifted from his brain. And he could think more clearly again. And um, he felt like probably about four or five days into it, we looked at each other, and you know, we f we felt like our life had changed for the better. And you know, he felt like he had a life again, that he had a future to look forward to. And um, so his depression lifted, you know, very very significantly um, within a short time. Um, and he was getting testing because he was in this clinical trial. So during the first year of the trial, his there's a test, it's like a 75-point test called the um, Alzheimer's Disease Assessment Scale Cognitive, and um, his score improved by six points during that year. And there's another 78-point test called the Activities of Daily Living, and his score improved by 14 points on a 78-point scale over a year. And normally with Alzheimer's, you'd expect both of those numbers to go down. Um, so we think he was actually on the placebo because, as I said earlier, this particular study um, they found uh, when they broke the, the code um, of the first 18 months of data, 
that the people who were on the drug had accelerated worsening of the disease compared to the, the placebo, and um, it was a crossover trial. So after 12 to 14 months, if you were on the placebo, they would then put you on the drug. And that was one of the reasons we chose this particular study, because we knew eventually he would get it. If he didn't get it right away, he would get it later. And he was in the study for 19 months. So, you know, I figure he was probably getting the drug for somewhere between five to seven months. And we haven't been able to find out yet. So after a year, he did level off. Um, and for he has, his physical symptoms have never returned, and the visual tremor, but cognitively, he has come down some, you know, since that point. But we're four years later now, and um, I thought I was going to, that he'd be gone by now, you know, and he's still going strong. And, um, you know, I, I, do, I don't know what would have happened if he'd not been in the study. Now, you know, looking back, you know, it's easy to say, I, I wish we had never got him in the study, you know. Right. But, um you know, he. I felt like he went back in time at least two or three years, um, and in some regards maybe even further. And, you know, our family and friends confirmed about a month after he started the coconut oil, they, uh, we had been there a year earlier, and he didn't recognize certain nieces and brother-in-laws. He couldn't remember their names, and, and he was just very lost, and conversations didn't make sense. And this time... They, they saw a huge change, you know, where he, he remembered their names and he talked, you know, with everyone, you know, in conversations that made sense. He even cracked jokes and they said he was just totally different than he was a year earlier. And so, you know, I knew it wasn't my imagination. No. <laughs> it really, you got your husband back. Yeah. What a, what a wonderful, remarkable, exciting story. Mm -hmm. For those of you listening, the description of those three clocks that Dr. Newport just described are on rotating on the radio show page. You can see then the actual visual images of what Steve drew uh, at those three different points in time, as well as some other slides about the discoveries that she's made with regard to coconut oil and MCT oil. We'll be right back with this incredible story that Dr. Mary Newport is telling us. I am on the edge of my seat in just a minute. I'm Robert Rogers from Parkinson's Recovery, and my guest today is Dr. Mary Newport. When I launched Parkinson's Recovery six years ago, my expectation was that I would be able to identify perhaps a half a dozen or even a dozen options that individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's disease could pursue to be able to get relief from their symptoms and even reverse their symptoms. Six years later, I've been quite amazed and delighted, I must admit, that it hasn't just been six options. It hasn't just been 12 options. We've identified dozens and dozens of options that people can consider. The challenge, as it turns out, has turned on the puzzle of which options to pursue. I get calls regularly from individuals, and basically the question is, I don't know where to start. Quite frankly, I'm overwhelmed. There's so much out there that's obviously helping some people. I really don't know what's going to help me. My response has been to create two opportunities that are going to be available, one this Sunday and one in June. 
the opportunity this Sunday, which is Mother's Day, will be to join up with an individual who has reversed his own symptoms and who is symptom-free today, Howard Chifke, in the launch of the new Sunday Connections chat room program. This particular program enables everyone in any country in the world to connect in and talk by voice with other individuals who want to deal with just that issue. What options are out there? What's helping people? And what might actually help me if I decide to pursue that particular option? For more information about the Sunday Connections program that is just beginning this Sunday and that will continue each and every subsequent Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, go to www.sundays.parkinsonsrecovery.com or you can always call our toll-free number to sign up. That's 877-526-4646. You can interface by voice through your phone, through your computer. You can write questions. You can chat in writing. So there are lots of different interface opportunities for each and every Sunday afternoon. It's an opportunity that's available now for everyone who has those periods of downtime, who gets disappointed, who's frustrated in in the journey to recover from the symptoms of Parkinson's. To find out again more information about Sunday Connections, you can email me or call the toll-free number once again, 877-526-4646, or my email is robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, at parkinsonsrecovery.com. The second opportunity to help you sort through the options is at the Parkinson's Recovery Summit in Cincinnati, June 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. It's kicked off on the evening, Thursday of the 21st, with the reception from 7.30 to 9 in the evening for all who are attending. People are coming to Cincinnati, Ohio, from Europe, from Canada, from across literally every state in the United States and from Mexico. It's our annual event, and it is the event of the year, if not the decade, for anyone and their family members who currently is experiencing the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Again, you can get more information by calling those same toll-free numbers or email me, or you can visit the Summit website, which is www.summit.com. Parkinson'sRecovery.com. And finally, Dr. Newport is discussing some of the challenges with obtaining funding to do the studies that she was just suggesting needed to be done, and you will hear more descriptions of that here in the second segment of my interview with her as of this morning. You can email her, and if you know of funding resources, if you have money to contribute, be sure to let her know. She's very much collaborating with Dr. Veach at the NIH, and they would like to be able to get a study underway looking at the impact of MCT oil and coconut oil on the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And now, back to my interview with Dr. Mary Newport. After talking about this incredible journey that you've been on, Dr. Newport, you have written a book about it. Can you tell everybody about that? Right, right. Um, well, 
you know, as I said earlier, I had a big secret that I felt <laughs> like I had to share with the world, and and um, it was it was overwhelming to know this and um, and know how many people needed this information. And first, I wrote an article in July of 2008, um, about two months after um, this happened with Steve. I sent it out to politicians and media and uh, everybody I could think of uh, to try to get attention to this, and I would ask them, please have your scientific advisors look at the simple biochemistry of this. It makes sense. You know, I know my husband's only one person, but uh, if he responds, other people will respond. You know, that was kind of the approach. Um, it was the Alzheimer's Association, um, Alzheimer's Study Group, of which um, uh, Justice Sandra, Sandra Day O'Connor, you know, was a member, and her husband had Alzheimer's, and, you know, I just thought I would get through to somebody, and they just, you know take the bull by the horns and do something with it and, and nothing happened it was um it was very sad and um so i kind of started a grassroots i started with our local health food stores um and they would give people my article and then the st petersburg times locally it's a regional newspaper um did a story about us and that is when it got out on the internet um and it went viral on the internet it's still one of their top stories that they've ever uh, their top emailed stories um, so then um, I decided I need to write a book, you know, and provide more information. And the, the whole point of the book is really to try to get with a message out to people about this, that this is something that could potentially help their lo loved one, but also to stimulate funding for research. Um, large clinical trials really should be done, you know, with this type of thing, but it's coconut oil, and it's not, it's not a drug. And uh, it's very hard to find monies, you know, for this type of study. Um, but uh, So I try to stimulate funding for that and also for Dr. Veach for his ketone ester, you know, to try to encourage the NIH or other charitable sources of funding, you know, to help him with this. Um, he doesn't want to turn it over to a drug company because he feels they will make it very expensive. Um, and he feels like so many people need it and it needs to be affordable. So he, he is looking for a charitable or government source. Of funding for these studies, um, so I wrote the book. It took about 16 months to write it, about 10 months longer than I thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's basically divided into three parts. And the first part is our story um, in a lot more detail. Um, it, it's kind of addressed to the caregivers among us. Um, I think a lot of people will find things that are helpful, or they'll they'll recognize you know, their person and, you know, what happened with Steve. Um, the middle part is the science of ketones. It explains the whole science. I did a lot of literature research with this. There are more than 150 references um, from various studies that have taken place uh, with regard to ketones, and I tried to, to present it in such a way that I hope the average person will be able to read it and understand it. I try to put it into plain English, although some of the stuff is very hard to convert it to plain English. But, um, and then the third part of the book is really how to incorporate these medium-chain triglycerides, the MCT oil and coconut oil, into the diet. Um, so I explain a lot about fatty acids and how fatty acids work. Um, it addresses the whole issue of cholesterol and saturated fats, um, which people are afraid of. Coconut oil is very high in saturated fats. It's about 70% saturated fats, but most of those are actually the medium chain triglycerides, and they behave very differently. They're not stored as fat. They are used right away as energy. Um, they're converted to ketones, part of it, 
and the rest of it is actually used directly as energy by mitochondria and the cells. Um, the medium chain fats might even be used by the brain cells also in addition to the ketones. It's just a, another study that needs to be done to prove that one way or the other. Uh, we do know that it crosses into the brain and it disappears there. <laughs> it's mm. not stored in the brain either, so it probably is used as energy. Um, so, uh, but there, there's a great deal about how to use it in the diet. You know, people have uh, lots of questions, and it it answers how to start. You know, I recommend that people start with a small amount. Even though um, Steve tolerated two tablespoons right away, a lot of people don't. They'll develop rather explosive and sudden diarrhea from it. <laughs> so, this is not something. If you're going to try to take that much of it, you need to stay home <laughs> for a few hours. <laughs> but um, instead, I recommend that they start with one teaspoon two or three times a day uh, with food. And if they tolerate that, then every couple of days increase by that same amount until they're getting some with every meal. And um, basically, over time, um, well, Dr. Veach measured ketone levels in Steve. And what uh, they found was that the MCT oil had higher levels at the peak and about an hour and a half after you take it, but the ketones are gone after three hours, you know, after taking uh, MCT oil. Um, so the Axona product is, it was only studied for one dose a day, and the ketones from that will be gone after three hours. So I know people who are actually taking Axona and then using coconut oil or MCT oil later in the day. Um, with coconut oil, the levels peak level is lower, but it lasts much, much longer, um, probably at least six to eight hours are still measurable ketones after you have that much coconut oil, like two tablespoons of coconut oil. And so I started mixing the two so you get higher levels from MCT and longer duration from coconut oil, and then giving it to Steve at least three times a day, and now a fourth time. I give him some at bedtime, too. And um, the idea here is to keep ketones available to his brain 24-7. Um, and, you know, I don't know is that necessary or not, but I do see that, you know, uh, on the occasion when we he didn't get a dose in time, like right away in the morning, uh, like once when we traveled, you know, it was about three hours late, he got very shaky and confused. So, you know, I think there really is something to trying to keep the ketones elevated, you know, for the whole uh, 24 hours. Um, and, you know, so basically that's, you know, that's my book. Um, are there recipes in the book? There are a few recipes. Or hopefully the next edition will have more, but there are a few recipes. And um, there are, I have yeah, a list of uh, books as resources, and I list some cookbooks in there. One is um, Bruce Fife has one called The Coconut Lover's Cookbook, and I like that one a lot because it has a lot of the, you know, the Asian-type recipes, but it also takes a lot of traditional American recipes and um, converts the oil that's in it to coconut oil. Um, so I find that I found that cookbook very very useful, you know, um, in uh, working out our our meals. And so um, it's the book you, you can get it. Uh, my publisher is Basic Health Publications, so they have a website basichealthpub.com, p-u-b, and um, it's also available through Amazon and also uh, Barnes and Noble. And uh, I understand it's in some of the Barnes and Noble stores, and they can order it, um, or you can order it from, you know, BasicHealthPub.com. And what's the title of the book? The title of the book is Alzheimer's Disease: What If There Was a Cure? The Story of Ketones. And ketones is spelled K-E-T-O-N-E-S. A lot of people try to put a Y in it, but it's K-E-T-O-N-E-S. Um, 
uh, my website, uh, you can see on one of the slides, is www.coconutketones.com. And um, I have a lot of information that people can print out. Uh, my original July 08 article is there. Uh, there's now a Spanish version of it available to print out. Um, I have some diet guidelines that people can print out, and all of this is free. You can just go there and, and print it out on your computer. Um, I have um, links to other websites like the NIH, uh, their most recent report on uh, Alzheimer's disease, the status of um, what is known about uh, this disease, uh, for example. Um, I have a blog. Uh, I update it not as often as I would like to, um, but uh, I have quite a few topics that I've covered over the last couple of years on the blog, um, such as the importance of adding fish oil to use, the use of coconut oil. Um, one of the things about coconut oil is it basically has all of the lengths of fatty acids except it does not have any omega-3 fatty acid. It has a little bit of omega-6, but no omega-3. And um, so you need to add that. Um, and so, you know, uh, people need to be aware, too, uh, with Alzheimer's disease that, um, like, for example, there is some omega-3 in certain vegetable oils like uh, flax oil and chia oil and walnut oil, but... Some people have trouble elongating the fatty acid in the vegetable oils to the form that the brain needs, which is called DHA. And so if you want to be really certain um, that you're getting the omega-3 that your brain needs, you need a marine source of omega-3. And um, so that would be fish oil uh, or algae oil. If like for uh, somebody who's a vegan, you know, would probably be, be okay with um, algae oil. And, and um, this is actually a product that's made for pregnant women. You can find it very easily in Walgreens or, uh, well, I don't want to, <laughs> your drugstore, your local <laughs> drugstore. Um, but uh, most of them carry this now in, in that section. And um, you can actually get high DHA capsules um, from various companies uh, so, um, and people ask me a lot about capsules. That's a question I get very often. And there's only one gram of coconut oil in a capsule, and there's 14 grams in a tablespoon. So you would have to eat 14 capsules to equal one tablespoon of coconut oil. And I think that's a very difficult and uh, expensive <laughs> way, oh. you know, to, to get coconut oil. So that, that's a common question. So we spent quite a bit of time uh, talking about Steve's story mm -hmm. and also uh, many of the Parkinsonian kind of symptoms that he's experienced. Mm -hmm. Do you happen to have any evidence at all as to how this might apply to individuals who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease? Right. Um, I don't have a study, but what I do have is um, I've gotten emails from many, many, many people. and. Um, uh, you know, as my my July 08 article got out online, people started contacting me, and um, I have 13 uh, emails from people with Parkinson's disease who feel like that there were some improvement. And if you like, I could. Some of them are very short, and others are a little lengthy. Oh, it'd be wonderful. Could you read them? I'm sure people yeah, would love yeah. to hear. Okay, so um, uh, this is actually a man from England that contacted me. Um, he said, four weeks ago, my wife, Jill, could not speak, could not walk, and was unbelievably down. He said she had Parkinson's disease with dementia. Now she talks all the time, can walk quite well with a little help. 
<laughs> wow. Is, yeah, this was after starting, uh, four weeks after starting coconut oil. And then um, here's another where um, the husband was suffering from Parkinson's, and uh, what she says is he has deteriorated quite a bit, has deep depression and an unsteady gait, and no meaningful mental exchanges to speak of. Um, so they purchased coconut oil, and she says um, uh, we gave him three tablespoons of coconut oil. The very next morning, he was up an hour and a half earlier than ever before. He swept the snow off the porch and went out to the barn to feed the horses. <laughs> <laughs> that day, they gave him another. They gave him another three tablespoons of oil, and later that day, their son said that he had a me- meaningful conversation and a visit with his dad for an hour and a half. And he said, I can't remember how long it has been since I have been able to do that. Oh, so they wonderful. were thrilled. They oh, felt like, uh, really? He that had that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, oh. and then here's another lady. Her mother, um, she is talking about her mother who is 94. And um, like Steve had um, Parkinson's disease, well, had progressive dementia, but uh, also with Parkinson's for about six or seven years. And um, she said that the Parkinson's has made her rigid, on her right side and that she uh, kept her right hand in a fist with her thumb pressed against the palm. But um, she had started um, coconut oil and I think this was a couple of weeks later, yeah, this is about three weeks later, that um, she uh, noticed that her fingers were normally extended and much less rigid. And uh, she had been silent most of the time and now she's much more participative and has used short sentences, although sometimes some of the words are not right, you know, but she felt like she had improved with language. And she, right before writing this, she said, just a while ago I looked at her right hand and her thumb was no longer retracted against her palm. So, you know, she saw some improvement in her, you know, physical symptoms and a little bit in conversation there. Um, Let's see, and then here's another. um, her husband, uh, Robert, was diagnosed with Parkinson's last summer, she said, and we've already seen positive results in just the first two weeks of taking the oil. Um, she said the progress has been measured simply by him experiencing clearer thinking and less tremors. Um, let's see. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's one that um, had improved sleep. Um, was diagnosed. Uh, with Parkinson's about 17 months earlier at age 61, and his main symptom, oh, he, he's reporting himself, um, the main symptom was um, uh, Parkinson's disease with a tremor in my right hand and arm, he says, and for many months I have not gotten a good night's sleep, awakening several times during the night to go to the bathroom, and sometimes I've been unable to fall back to sleep. Um, he said, well, uh, Friday night, four days after beginning the coconut oil, I only got up once during the night and fell right back to sleep. And Saturday night and last night, I slept all through the night. He put in capital letters. <laughs> oh, wow. You know? <laughs> so that was an improvement for him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, these are the kinds of things. Um, you know, there's another uh, 74-year-old lady uh, who's had Parkinson's diagnosed for seven years. And um, the husband reported that he he said, I can see no improvement in her short-term memory, but I can tell you her energy level has certainly improved um, and her Parkinson's seems to be stable he said so you know th- those are just some of the you know uh, the reports that I've gotten um, about Parkinson's you know uh, I've been sending you know and I've heard uh, from a couple of people with Huntington's Korea Huntington's disease 
that's a, uh, an inherited disease. It's a horrible disease. Your parents develop it <laughs> when they're in their mid-30s, so you're already alive and getting to be a, at least a teenager. And um, when your parents develop this, and then I think it's about a 50-50 chance that you will develop it. And it's just a horrible uh, disease that progresses, and eventually they develop seizures. But they often have like an unsteady gait, and um, uh, they have balance issues early on. And um, I've had... Uh, well, one man, for example, his wife's been in, in touch with me uh, for over a year now that uh, he improved. Like, his, he became uh, much more balanced than, and uh, very early after taking coconut oil. And, and he has, he's not showing any symptoms at all now, a year later. Um, you know, so these are the kind of things. Um, there's a man with um, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and he contacted me about a year after he started coconut oil. He saw there's a, a, a set of uh, videos on YouTube uh, that we did in 2009. Um, a man very generously uh, offered to, to do this, to videotape uh, an interview, and, and it's in like six segments on YouTube. Um, and so this man had seen this video, and uh, he started using coconut oil. He got up to eight to nine tablespoons a day, and he also rubs it into his uh, legs, like his muscles. And um, he reported after a year that he had not gotten worse and it actually improved a little bit. He had one of his legs felt like it was dead and he got the feeling back in his leg and um, the muscle mass increased slightly. He measures, he every month he does a whole set of measurements and little tests you know, on himself to keep track of this. And now it's more than two years uh, since this has happened, and he's still stable. He hasn't gotten any worse, and he's actually gotten just a little bit better. Um, and Lou Gehrig's is a kind of disease where you do get worse over a year, and his doctors are now questioning his diagnosis. Oh, <laughs> how wonderful. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's like, uh, they can't believe that he could have ALS, you know, and you know somehow they, they don't want to believe that something like medium-chain fatty acids, ketones, could arrest, you know, that disease. Um, so, you know, I, I've just heard from many people with, you know, various diseases, um, including like autism, um, diabetes, um, some uh, like peripheral neuropathy is another one. Um, some very rare, <laughs> you know, unusual diseases. Uh, but, you know, just a person here, a person there. Um, but, you know, I hope to hear from more people and but you know, it seems like um, you know the ketone, the ketone ester. I just think about that so much. You know, it just it's it's been four years <laughs> since I first talked to Dr. Veach about this. You know, and there's been a little bit of progress. But I thought, sure, at that point, surely within four years there would be some action taken on it. You know, um, there really hasn't been, and you know, I'm hoping that um, you know my book will get in the right hands to the right people and that they will uh, see fit to get the funding to him that he needs. Well, I would like to say I'm sure the right people are listening to this show right now, Dr. Newport. I hope so. <laughs> now, if individuals decide, oh, this is a great idea, I'm going to go do exactly what Dr. Newport mm -hmm. suggested mm -hmm. and have got stories to tell you, will you welcome receiving those oh, emails? Yeah. And yeah. so where do they send their stories to? 
Yeah, um, I have an email address. I'm a little behind. Actually, a few weeks behind on answering. So, if you don't hear back from me right away, you will eventually. Um, I just get overwhelmed with uh, emails, but um, it's ketones, K E T O N E S zero eight at aol dot com is my email address, um, and uh, that's on the the website too. They can find that on the website, and I have a little bit of information there. Uh, if you dig deep enough on the website, um, as far as like what type of information to provide, you know, the um, age of the person, sex, the diagnosis, and then I just I like to hear it open ended instead of me giving a list of of I don't want to suggest to people, you know, I want to hear what they see as far as improvements, you know, so I get uh, spontaneous answers from people, um, to, you know, to know to see what what kind of improvement. Some people give a great deal of detail before and after. This is what you know we saw before. This is what we see now, and and those are very very helpful. Um, I have um, gotten to present at a couple of conferences. One was in uh, Greece in 2010, um, the Alzheimer's Disease International Conference. I got to present Steve's case study and also do a poster presentation where I had at that time 47 people with dementia. And it showed the types of improvements they had, and about two thirds of the people had some type of cognitive improvement, which you know was like memory um, improvement in test scores, that type of thing. Um, and a lot of people had other improvements that were more that you would consider quality of life, you know, recognizing family members again, um, better social interaction, improved mood, uh, relief from depression, uh, improved conversation resuming activities that they had stopped doing, you know, those kinds of things. So I I was able to put together a chart. I kind of categorized these types of improvements and then chart up to show what kind of improvements. And, you know, my point being that, um, you know, uh, you can test people for cognitive function, but that, you know, it's very hard to test for some of these other things. <laughs> but if people have um, improved quality of life, you know, even if it's not, you know, improvement in memory, <laughs> there there are other aspects and other things that are important to us as human beings, and um, you know they may see those types of improvements as well. It's now been four years, really, since you've discovered this and have pursued it and explored it in mm -hmm. many different ways, writing the book and, of course, experimenting with doing different things with your husband, Steve. What's the next step? What's in the future for all of this incredible journey you've been on? Oh, gosh. Um, well, <laughs> there will eventually be a second edition of the book. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it came out in October, and... Um, you know, I want to keep it updated. Uh, you know, keep the the research in new, any new research and uh, uh, with ketones updated. Um, and and I hope you know the next time around, I'm going to be able to report that some clinical testing was done with the ketone ester, and these are the results. Yes. Because somebody has funded this research. You know, that's what I hope, and and I hope to hear from many many more people. I just I just hope. You know, my goal has been that every single person who's suffering from one of these diseases will know about it and that they will have a choice, you know, as to whether they want to do it or not. It's a dietary intervention. It's not a drug. You know, it's not going to have serious adverse effects. Um, uh, you know, people worry a lot about the cholesterol issue. And basically what we saw with Steve is first his HDL went up, and that's 
what is often seen with coconut oil, the good cholesterol or HDL, tends to rise. So the total may rise a little bit at first, and then his LDL, which is considered the bad cholesterol, gradually came down, and now his levels are absolutely normal. His total is 168, which is well within the normal range. Um, his HDL runs in the 70s and 80s, and his LDL is um, in the 90s. So, you know, they're, they're beautiful, and his triglyceride levels are in the 70s normally. Uh, people know what normals are, you know, they know that those are well within the normal range. People are afraid it's going to make their triglyceride levels go sky high, but the things that actually do that are, are eating too many calories and eating too much carbohydrate is what really takes up your triglyceride levels. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the fear of coconut oil is, is unjustified. <laughs> and I, I wish that more study would be done with that, too. I mean, the studies were done, you know, many of the studies were done decades ago. They used hydrogenated coconut oil in the studies. Some of the diets were deficient in omega-3, which is known to raise cholesterol levels. And they were very short studies. A lot of them, they looked for six weeks. And, you know, it takes a long time for the fatty acids and in your body to, to turn over and, um, you know, so they need to be really long-term studies. And then there really is the whole question is cholesterol really is much of a problem. <laughs> but, you know, I address that kind of thing in the book. I have a whole chapter about that in the book, which people might be interested in. I want to say I am so excited that you were not called out on emergency during this <laughs> last hour. I have to yeah, tell you, I was thinking <laughs> I was thinking every 10 minutes, oh, I hope she's not going to be called away right, right, to the right. hospital. Yeah. Well, it's an, incredible, it's an incredible story, Dr. Newport, for uh, the kind of work that you do at the hospital and then what you've really come to do in terms of other research and discoveries about the incredible impact that ketones can have on people's ability to recover from symptoms associated with Parkinson's disease and others. Right. Thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> well, thank you for being a guest. And I tell you, you're going to have a profound impact on many people. And I can guarantee you, you're going to start getting some emails from people. <laughs> so good. we'll I'm add like, to that list of we'll add to that list of 13 so that you'll have a long list of stories from people who oh. are using this as a way to get relief from their symptoms. That's great. I look forward to hearing from them. Great. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Do you feel from time to time as though you need someone to talk with? You need to get some ideas on options that need to be pursued, some feedback on whether or not you're on the right track? This Sunday is your first opportunity, and you'll be able to get that same opportunity each and every Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific time. We have a whole panel of eight hosts most of whom are coaches, and not just health coaches, coaches who are helping individuals recover from the symptoms of Parkinson's. And the coaches, most of them, actually at one time had symptoms of Parkinson's and are on the road to recovery or have fully and completely reversed their symptoms. It's an opportunity, folks, to get literally free coaching from individuals who know what it means to confront these neurological challenges. Join Howard Chiftke, who is the coach for this Sunday. I know it's Mother's Day, but it's a great day to start Sunday Connections. For more information, visit www.sundays.parkinsonsrecovery.com. I'm Robert Rogers, 
If you'd like to sign up for the Sunday Connections or for the Summit, you can always call our toll-free number, 877-526-4646. Some people think you're going to get uh, some telephone operators who will take your information down. No, you actually get me. I'm the one who answers the phone. I look forward to meeting many of you who I know are coming to the Parkinson's Recovery Summit in Cincinnati, June 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. For those of you who are coming and haven't heard, we are having a reception on Thursday evening from 7.30 until 9 in the evening, giving everyone a chance to meet one another and certainly to meet the eight presenters who will be offering the 18 workshops during the two days, June the 22nd and June the 23rd in Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's what's happening on the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the men, women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you are listening to this radio show today, that you are indeed on the road to recovery. Good day.